Hello. This is the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. I'm Aiden Flax-Clark. Today on the show, a conversation about climate change in the Arctic with Canadian journalist and best-selling author Naomi Klein and Danish journalist Martin Broom. They were here at the library at the beginning of December last year as part of something that's called the Arctic Imagination Project. It's spearheaded by the Royal Library in Denmark, and they bill it as an international library collaboration about the disappearing ice. Basically, scientists and artists and other people get together and talk about climate change and talk about the Arctic in specific. And there are six major libraries in Denmark, Sweden, Greenland, Norway, and us here in New York that are involved. Here's a little bit more from the website that explains the project. Today, the Arctic region is being challenged, especially by melting ice and rising sea levels caused by climate change. As the Arctic Resilience Report states, the Arctic ice simply takes up less space than any previous measurements have ever shown. Also, that the effects of the disappearing ice will be felt everywhere on the planet, even in the Indian Ocean. The warning signals are getting stronger. So, you know, it was a happy conversation, filled with optimism. Although, believe it or not, Naomi Klein, in her own way, managed during the chat to find hope for why the world might get it together and start actually doing something about the melting ice and the many other impacts on our Earth that climate change is having. And I say in her own way because it's um, like a pessimistic optimism, I guess you'd call it, but you'll hear what I mean. And because this talk is a month old, there are a few references to things in the news in it, tax reform and ANWR, for instance, that have progressed since then. But actually, the updates since they spoke only strengthen the arguments that they make. Also, Martin Broom shows quite a few slides and videos, but anything that doesn't make sense without seeing it, we cut. And the ones that remain have an impact either by hearing the video sound or the descriptions of the images. And Naomi Klein's book that they referenced throughout is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. And with that, let's get to the show. Let me quickly remind you that if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, get in there to your podcatcher of choice and subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, we appreciate you taking a moment to leave us some stars, a review, anything to help us know how you're enjoying the show. All right, here's Martin Broom and Naomi Klein. Naomi, let's, let's jump right into it. Um, you have a very special way of looking at climate change. So let's, let me try to just say, how do you put the Arctic changes into your view on climate change? Mm. Um, <coughs> sorry, I'm going to have be ha- having to ask people to bear with me a little bit with a cough. I have everything I could possibly need up here, but like, this could go Theresa May on us. <coughs> Hopefully things won't start falling off the wall, but it could, it could happen in that kind of a week. Now that I've said that, of course it will. Yeah, so when, when um, I mean, you know, climate change as a global crisis is a crisis that reminds us of our interconnection. It doesn't respect any boundaries. Um, it, break, it breaks down all the stories that we tell ourselves about separation and isolation and domination. Um, and um, it exposes uh, relationships that we've denied, uh, dependencies that we've denied, consequences that we've denied, right? So, um, you know, that melting ice that, that you've been showing us translates in a city like New York in a rising um, storm surge that, that manifests as a storm like Sandy, um, reaching places that were unprecedented because of sea level rise. So, you know, the framing of this series, which is a really interesting series, is, I think, is something we should kind of probe a little bit, right? Because, you know, as you pointed out, it, you know, the Arctic is not an imaginary. Um, it, the, Certainly it, not. Yeah, I mean, the, the Arctic has, has occupied 
a space in Western colonial imagination that is really unique, that is like, it's sort of like the ultimate out there, the ultimate other, right? Um, the ultimate difference, which is becoming less different as the ice and more recognizable and more of a frontier as exactly. the ice melts, at, yeah. as the consequence of the economic model that we've been you know, uh, exporting to every corner of the globe plays out in, in the Arctic and melts the ice and turns it into a terrain that's more recognizable, makes it easier to mine, makes it easier to drill for oil. So, you know, the way I write about it in This Changes Everything is, it, you know, it is kind of a, a manifestation of the insanity of our economic model that can't stop, right? So, um, as the, the ice melts in large part because of our... Um, uh, uh, of our profligate use of fossil fuels, that becomes an opportunity to access more fossil fuels that is fueling the crisis. So it really is this, you know, manifestation of the um, the inability of the system we have mm -hmm. to th to be rational <laughs> in the face of a crisis, um, because in a rational system you would see the melting of the Arctic ice as a signal that you, we need to change. And rather than it being seen as that, it's actually being harnessed as a signal, signal to accelerate. And the only reason why we are accelerating more at the moment when it comes to access to Ar Arctic resources is because the price of oil has been exactly. hovering around $40, $50 a barrel mm. for the past couple of years. The real scramble for the Arctic was on three years ago when the price of oil was at $100 a barrel because it still is very expensive to explore in the Arctic because it is so remote and it's, you know, it's very dangerous. So as soon as the price of oil collapsed, you started to see the oil majors yeah, and, and, lose and, and, some interest, but they'll be back you know, as soon as the, the price rebounds. And it hasn't stopped. I mean, it's still ongoing. There are still new new areas of the Arctic that are opened up for as as we'll come back to the. But to there's the, just one other thing I would just say about the you know the imaginary versus the real, right? And the sure. fact that this is this is this is it's not uninhabitable as is often described. It is habited. It um it is a it is homeland to many different indigenous peoples and has been. Um, for thousands upon thousands of years. And that's important to recognize, not as a point of political correctness, but also because if we are concerned about the scramble for these resources and the impact on all of us, including people who live in coastal cities like this one, um, then we should recognize that indigenous land rights and treaty rights, various kinds, are, have, sh have, have been shown to be the most robust tools I'm, for stopping that exploration. I'm coming back to that, yeah. because th that's a very important point that Sorry, you guys. have explicitly uh, no. dealt with in this book. But I want to uh, remain just a little aloft uh, on a global scale. You have this phenomenal way of combining uh, climate change efforts or, or efforts to, to stop climate change with all sorts of other efforts, and I think this is crucial to understand. So I'll read a paragraph from your book, This Changes Everything About Climate Change. I think this came out um, two, three years ago, 2014. Yes. So bear with, with me and my poor English. Climate change does not need some shiny new movement that will magically succeed where others failed. Rather, as the furthest reaching crisis created by the extractivist worldview and one that puts humanity on a firm and unyielding deadline, climate change can be the force, 
the grand push that will bring together all of these still living movements. And here you're talking, of course, of the labor movement, the women's liberation, the civil rights, and so forth. A rushing river fed by countless streams, gathering collective force to finally reach the sea. And then you quote Franz Fanon, who wrote in, in 61, The Wretched of the Earth, the basic confrontation, which seems to be colonialism versus anti-colonialism, indeed capitalism versus socialism, is already losing its importance. When matters today, what matters today, the issue which blocks the horizon is the need for a redistribution of wealth. Humanity will have to address this question, no matter how devastating the consequences must be. Quote, finished climate change, you say, is our chance to right these festering wrongs. At last, the unfinished business of liberation. Sorry, this was a bit long, but I think this puts it very nicely. Can you elaborate on that? You see everything together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I came to climate change as an, as an issue late. It wasn't that I um, was unconcerned, uh, um, but I was somebody who was writing more about economic justice, social justice, human rights. Uh, um, and my wake-up call was Hurricane Katrina. I was, I was writing... Um, the book that I wrote before this book, The Shock Doctrine, yep. that came out a little more than a year, uh, 10 years ago. And that book begins and ends with Hurricane Katrina. And I was in New Orleans to cover what I was calling disaster capitalism, the use of large-scale shocks uh, to push through a radical pro-corporate agenda. And originally that book was just going to be about the Iraq war and how the Iraq war was used to try to privatize Iraq and build this sort of free market utopia. But as I was writing the book, I started to see these tactics being used in the aftermath of natural disasters. First the Asian tsunami um, and then Hurricane Katrina where you know, many of you will remember how uh, after the, 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 the storm, there was this sort of frenzy to privatize the school system. New Orleans now has the most privatized school system in the United States um, to demolish public housing and what's being now being called climate gentrification. Um, and, uh, and actually, at the time, they tried to use it to push to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's important for people to understand that they only have five ideas, um, and they just, like, recycle them, whatever the crisis is. <clears throat> this time, it seems they're finally going to get, the, get, get, get their, their wish with Anwar, but they've been trying to use every crisis they possibly can to, to push this through. Um, so, uh, so, you know, what... To answer your question about how, you know, why I see it in this way, with, with Katrina, it was so clear that what we were seeing was not one crisis, but many crises intersecting, right? You had heavy weather of the uh -huh. kind that's linked more to, 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 to you know, warmer oceans, more powerful storms. But it was also just the legacy of neoliberalism, of, of economic policies that starved the public sphere, right? There had been warning after warning to fix the levees. They didn't fix the levees, right? And overlaying on top of that is systemic racism and the issue of, you know, who gets saved, whose lives are valued, right? Which is, you know, the issue at the heart of Black Lives Matter. And it is, you know, we see these same... Um, intersecting crises right now in Puerto Rico, right? A starved exactly. public sphere, a legacy of colonialism, a sense of, you know, some lives don't matter as much as others. I mean, do we, do we believe that people would have been left in the dark for as long as Puerto Ricans have been left in the dark if they were not Spanish-speaking? Um, 
and brown skin and black skin. Um, so it's not just one crisis. And, climate, and, and so that's what sort of pulled me into uh, this. So I came at it from these other issues. Right. And, and it was clear to me that climate change was just a layer on top of it that was making the whole system sort of more brittle, more brutal. And then you also have suggestions on how to deal with this massive uh, complex of problems. And, and I want to show you, not that you haven't seen it before, but I want to show the audience uh, a little clip from the trailer of uh, the trailer for the movie, This Changes Everything, because it's not only a book, it's also a movie directed by your husband, Avi Lewis. Um, and I have on video two, please, um, a little, uh, just a little clip from, from this trailer. Let's see that. You see communities who are thrown into the front line. They see the incredible transformation. They become stronger, they stand up. So here's the big question. What if global warming isn't only a crisis? What if it's the best chance we're ever going to get to build a better world? Change or be changed? There are limits. Let's celebrate the limits because we can reinvent our different future. Now, and let's bring two things together. Here is popular movements all over the world that you have visited and talked to and exemplified uh, through the movie and in your book. And then there's a tax reform <laughs> in the United States that cuts, is it 1,500 billions out of the coffers? Don't worry Four. about the figures, but <laughs> we all know what we're talking about. Yeah, 1.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so the argument I'm making this changes everything and that this is climate change, right, is that the future is radical. Um, one way or another, things are going to change. So if we stay on the road we're on, the one that seems moderate and conservative and staying the course and, and, and centrist, you know, like no sudden movements, you know, we have right. like small incremental change. What that actually produces is a level of warming that scientists tell us is um, three to four, like if, we, if, we, if every government were to do everything it promised it would do, when we went to Paris two years ago for the Paris climate change negotiations, and no government is, is living up to their Paris commitments. None. Not just the US, which has openly said, you know, screw it. Um, but even, the, even the, 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 the governments that are saying all the right things are not doing the right things, right? I'm Canadian, and I'm sorry to break it to you, but Justin Trudeau is not Superman, no matter how he dressed on Halloween. Um, <laughs> You know, the thing about Trump is that when you have a supervillain in the White House, it's really easy to look like Superman. Um, but, you know, Justin Trudeau is, um, you know, he, he's in favor of the Keystone XL pipeline. He's in favor of, um, you know, a, another major tar sands pipeline. He's in favor of a plan to increase production in the Alberta tar sands by 40%. That is completely incompatible with what Canada brought to, uh, to Paris. So... Even if, so if that wasn't happening and every government was living up to its Paris climate 
commitments, we would be on a road to warming the planet by three to four degrees. Right. And we've warmed the planet by one degrees, and we've opened up a new ocean, as you just showed us, right? So that's a really, that's radical. That's not conservative. That's not moderate. Um, that is an, a radical change to our physical world. Now, we can get off that very dangerous road, but we, we've waited so long that now in order to do so, we need to challenge the underlying economic ideology of our time. And th that means, it means, for starters, huge investments in the public sphere. And we've been living, you know, 50 years of a war on the public sphere. And these are the attacks that, you know, that, that, that are playing out with a brittle public but, infrastructure. But, but, but the public movements have not been able to prevent a tax reform that we've just seen here over the last yeah. couple of days that sort of defies any reform that ever was passed in the tax field in the United States, as far as I have read in the papers. Well, look, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I, 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 this is a hard week to be hopeful, you know? Um, you know, when I made that film, we made that film in, in two years ago before Trump. And I don't believe it's impossible for us to prevent catastrophic climate change, but we're going to be dealing with a very, very rocky future, right? right? I mean, that, that's, that we, much we've already locked in. And just to slow down a little bit on, the t sure, on what's happening sure. with, with Anwar, I mean, it's really striking, right? Because even without that, here you have this plan, and this, I think, really shows the tension between this economic ideology that, that it really is based on limitless growth, giving more and more to the people at the top in the hopes mm -hmm. that it will benefit everybody in the trickle-down, right? And there are you know, variations on the, how much redistribution there should be in that model, but that is the model, and it's pretty much bipartisan. With Trump, we have a very extreme version of it, right? Mm -hmm. They want to cut corporate taxes from 35% to 20%. Um, they've got all kinds of tax giveaways for the wealthy in this, in, in this plan. They also have all kinds of giveaways for fossil fuel companies other than opening up Anwar to drilling, um, increase, increase subsidies, a giveaway for Keystone XL, um, cutting, cutting subsidies for renewables. This is all buried in the tax plan, okay? <clears throat> Now, we know that best case scenario, it leaves a trillion dollar hole in the budget, right? So where's that trillion dollars going what, to, what's going to happen with that trillion dollars? Minimally, in a few years or one year, it turns into massive cuts to Social Security, Medicaid. Think about climate change. What, is it, what would it mean to do the things necessary in the face of the crisis that you just outlined? Uh -huh. We need to get off fossil fuels in a huge hurry. That means we change the way we get our energy. We change the way we live in cities. I mean, you come from Denmark. Like, you know, I mean, Copenhagen's an amazing city and very, very unlike any city in North America. And, you know, we would need to be changing the density with which we live, we need to change how we move ourselves around, we need huge investments in transit, huge investments in efficiency. All of this is money we need to spend. And what, we're, what, what they've just done is create a situation where we won't even be able to pay for the meager social safety net that we already have. And that's why I make the argument that if we really look this crisis in the eye, it demands huge changes that will benefit us on multiple fronts, not just climate change. There are so many different reasons to take on the logic of austerity. And indeed, if you do, if you lay out that plan, 
that can create huge numbers of good jobs. Um, and, um, you know, and that says, wait a minute, in a time of unprecedented private wealth, austerity is a logic at war with life on Earth, and we just can't afford it anymore. You're actually going to build a much more diverse, much more robust um, movement that environmentalists are able to build on their own when it comes to just you know, raising awareness about environmental issues. And, but, but, it becomes but, a bread and butter issue. But, and, and, and what we see from Europe, of course, is mainly a, an administration that does everything except from what you're saying they should do. Um, the, the Trump administration is, is obviously uh, puzzling at best to Europeans. It's very, very hard to grasp what is going on. So thank you again for <laughs> writing, no is not enough. I can't recommend this uh, enough. I hope this will be obligatory uh, stuff in public schools all over Europe. Um, but the denial uh, that is embedded uh, in the administration, in the denial that climate change is happening, that it's caused <clears throat> by human activity at all, um, is puzzling uh, at best. Yeah. It's, it's, it's scary to many people that it has taken hold of a government of a country of this magnitude. Uh, so I'd like to, to you to share some of your thoughts on denial uh, that, are, mm. that are prevalent in your books. Uh, but before you do that, I'd like to show a clip, not with your president, mm -hmm. but with another president. I was in Arkhangelsk, a beautiful city in Western Russia, northern, uh, Northwest Russia, uh, earlier this year. And there was a, a, a meeting in, in a wonderful theater they have, and President Putin was present. Uh, and he, he gave an interview, basically. And, and what he says in this little clip I'm going to show you is that climate change is basically something about solar uh, circles and, and, and curves. And, and what we should do about it is make sure that uh, the communities <clears throat> worst hit are more resilient. Basically, a piece of denial. Let's have uh, video number three, please. They started probably back in 1930s, and at that time we didn't have that much of the man-made uh, effect. But the global warming had already started, nevertheless. It's not about preventing uh, global warming. I agree with those who believe it's impossible. It may be related to some global cycles or some great uh, outer space cycles. It's about how to adjust ourselves to it. Mr. Johannesson told us about how the fish migrate and where they crop up, where they go. We need more research on that, and the people, the local communities, should get, get accustomed and get adjusted to the new things. So probably those people who are... In, not in agreement with uh, opponents may not be at all silly and that Mr. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, he headed uh, that uh, person you cited well God bless him anyway we should be able to listen to one another to find to seek and find solutions to the problems that, that would be more appropriate most appropriate I'd say and they are existent well, well Mr. President his name and, and, and this, as I said, this was this year. Mm -hmm. So denial is certainly not uh, an exclusive feature in, in, in Washington. But, but tell we me. can certainly see why Trump, Trump and Putin get along so well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they tell me. They all kinds of theories. But he, this is the head of a petro state. 
I mean, Putin is, is the head of a, a state that is extraordinarily dependent on oil and gas exports for its revenue. Um, it's been a state that has been suffering mightily since exactly. the price of oil collapsed because, precisely because so much of Russia's oil is Arctic oil. Um, and it's not profitable to extract it at $50 a barrel, so they need the price of oil to go up. And tell me, how can people, how, why, this is puzzling, this is really hard to understand in Europe. Why do <laughs> the Americans choose a president who deny climate change? <laughs> You're ask the Canadian. Um, I mean, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I don't think Trump was chosen because he denies climate change. I think no. the reasons why Trump was chosen by a minority of Americans is complex. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but I think it's, it is worth really understanding the, you know, the, the, the centrality of the fossil fuel sector, of, of really fulfilling the wish list of the fossil fuel sector to the Trump administration is, I think, something that's taken people a little bit by surprise. It's not, he didn't campaign on this that much, and yet, This is the area where he's actually gotten the most done. It's some of his first executive orders, right, were to approve the Keystone XL pipeline and the Dakota Access pipeline. Um, Scott Pruitt at the, at the EPA um, has been one of the most effective um, members of his cabinet. You know, there's been this sort of, I think until the tax bill, there was this narrative that Trump wasn't getting anything done, that it was totally, they were totally incompetent. It's a narrative that really drove me a bit nuts because I think Scott Pruitt has been getting so much done. I think they've been getting a lot done at the Department of Interior. Well, Most of it is about undoing, right? And we didn't, about we didn't buy that story that he wasn't doing anything in Europe, I can tell you. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Well, um, so, so I think the, the denial, the reason for the denial is, is twofold. One is, well, th maybe threefold. One is just straight up, um, you know, that I think they see it as a kind of a crime against humanity not to dig up profitable natural resources, right? And if we take the science of climate change seriously, it means we have to leave a lot of money in the ground. Mm. A lot of money in the ground. I mean, what the latest research tells us is that the fossil fuel frontier is closed if we want to meet the temperature targets in the Paris Agreement, right? right. That means there's no reason for any fossil fuel company in the world to continue to explore for new natural, uh, for, for new, new reserves, because we need to wind down what they already have in production, right? So, so they have to deny it, because if it's not true, then Exxon's entire business model yeah. is, is over. Um, and they, so, so I think that there's, there's that sort of crass profit motive. Then there's an ideological motive, which is they believe, they have a worldview um, that is about privatization, deregulation, low taxes offset with cuts to the public sphere. And if climate change is true, none of that is possible, right? We need to invest in the public sphere. The money has to come from somewhere. It's probably going to have to come from the people with the money who have just given themselves a huge tax cut or are in the middle of trying to. Uh -huh. um, the whole vilification of the public sphere can't stand because these are problems that we can only solve together if we're talking about changing how we power our lives and how we move ourselves around. Um, we're going to need something kind of New Deal era. You know, I think it can be more decentralized, but it isn't going to be something that is just market-based. And so 
They're protecting an ideology that this tax plan is the ultimate expression of. It's the, also just the most brutal. I mean, when you think about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and I do think it is worth pausing to just think about the vandalism that is on, on, at play here, right? I mean, this is, you know, not just, you know, a protected area. It is, you know, one of the great nurseries of the world. It is calving ground for the caribou. It is yeah. denning ground for the polar bears. It is, you know, this is where the young of all of these species, including all of these birds, go. This is where life comes from. And, you know, it is... Being the plan is just to desecrate all of that, yeah. to dig up dead stuff and burn it, and, you know? Um, and it is this, this area, this is the heritage of all of humanity. It's the heritage of our children. This is why it is protected and is literally being sacrificed so that a bunch of rich kids, the children of multi-billionaires and millionaires, can get a tax break on their inheritance. Okay, it is sacrificing the shared inheritance of humanity for that in, unearned private inheritance, a tax break for that. There's, I think there's, that's one of the greatest crimes I can imagine. It is pretty ugly. As a mother. No, 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 as a mother, <laughs> yes, as a parent. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting to think about what we talked about before of the images uh, we have in our minds and the images that, that, that our part of the world carry with us about the Arctic. Um, and I, I'd like to show you uh, a map. We were just seeing maps in this wonderful building. We had this exclusive mm -hmm. tour of the collections before. It was marvelous. But I'll show you another map here. From, it's from 15. This is picture number three, please. Uh, this is William Barents' map, a um, Dutch whaler who mapped the Arctic in 1599. Uh, this, uh, look, this is Greenland and the North Pole. Uh, lots of things were wrong in the geography at that time, but they knew one thing, they could get rich there. The whalers got oh, wow. very rich. There were some very uh, large companies um, in, in Europe that were based exclusively on the whaling and the oil that was made from the whales when they melted the fat off the oils. That was basically was lit the lamps in the streets of London and Amsterdam and Copenhagen at the time. Uh, and if you go on, picture number four, please. Uh, and already then uh, there was other pictures. Mary Shelley here who wrote um, back in 1818, wrote uh, the wonderful book about F Frankenstein and his monster. If we have picture number five, we'll just have uh, the, the Frankenstein and his monster here who of course ended up in the, at the North Pole. The pole was also, as you said before, it was a place at the end of the world and it wasn't nice. It was really an ugly place. I don't know if you remember, but Frankenstein's monster ends off just sort of disappearing into this horrible void. And picture number six, just to uh, reiterate this, this is from 1861, Frederick Church's The Icebergs, which is now at the Dallas Museum of Fine Arts. Look how horrible it is. This is an expedition gone horribly wrong. You can just see the ship that has uh, broken down in the ice there. It's not a nice place, although it's a beautiful picture, of course. Number seven, one more of the same uh, ilk. This is Man Proposes, God Disposes from 1864, Edwin Lancia. Uh, it's now the British uh, Royal Holloway. Um, 
this is the Franklin expedition, of course, gone wrong, and 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 they're all down there in the, in the horrible frigid waters. So this is a scary, horrible place, which, as you rightly put it earlier, of course, is not true. This is where millions of people are happily living and 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 having children and just carrying on with very very ordinary lives. Uh, so perhaps this is also a picture that we have to revise. Maybe it doesn't invite for a constructive engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're a communicator. A great way to do that is to, you know, listen to more Arctic voices. You exactly. Know? And I would encourage people. Um, what one really great book about the Arctic that came out a couple years ago is by Sheila Watt Cloutier called "The Right to Be Cold." The right to be called. Mm-hmm. And um, she's an uh, indigenous Arctic leader and um, has been resisting oil drilling in the Arctic, but she you know, writes very beautifully about, um, about, about the ice and the food uh, in particular. Yeah. There, there's another one I just want to mention here, The Last Imaginary Place. That's my favorite about the Arctic. It's by the Canadian um, archaeologist, Arctic archaeologist Robert McGee, and it tells you everything about uh, the wrongness, the, the faulty images that we carry with us. Um, mm-hmm. And let's just take... Yeah. I mean, I think, and whenever we have this idea of a middle of nowhere, you know, the, the beyond the beyond our imagination, that's where the most terrible things happen. Yes. You know, that's where the worst crimes... I, you know, in Australia, it's the outback. You know, it's the, it's, it's, it's the, the middle of the country, the desert, and that's where, you know, the, the, the nuclear waste is, is hidden and the, you know, refugee detention centers um, for a long time were there before they put them on, you know, even more remote middle-of-nowhere islands like Manus and Nauru... Um, And that's, I think, in a lot of the sort of North American colonial um, Arctic imagination, that's that's been the idea of the Arctic as this place that doesn't, that is so remote it will hide your secrets for you. Yeah, I'll I'll give you another example that I love. Um, Could I have picked it 10? I just talked the other day in in, in one of these uh, events in Copenhagen of Arctic uh, imaginations, I had a conversation with Jamie Lannister, uh, whose real name, of course, is... Stop bragging. Whose real name, of course, is Nikolai Kostavaldau. We pride ourselves, he's Danish. Uh, so we were speaking with Minnie Grosing, the scientist, and, and Nikolai and myself on stage in Copenhagen about Arctic imaginations because he's actually married to a Greenlandic wonderful actress and he's also a goodwill ambassador for the United Nations and, and the 17 uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and if I have, could have number 11, and we were talking about how Game of Thrones uh, by many is seen as a, um, a story about climate change and man fighting climate change and the futility of all the wars amongst men when what we have to do is get together and fight the common enemy. Uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's the number 12, uh, but again, the... Uh, the north, which is, of course, beyond the wall of ice, is a horrible place. It's mm. frigid, it's dangerous, and this is where the danger is coming from. And this is where I think, mm. if it's a true um, uh, way of talking about Game of Thrones, there's something wrong here in the logic, because climate change does not come from the north. Mm-hmm. This is something that we cause. So, uh, but what I really wanted yeah. to ask you is, is... These are amazing images, by the way. Thank you so much for bringing them. How do we get 
popular culture. Now, the big screen, there are 10 million viewers when they launch a new uh, pack of episodes. The 10 million people watch it. Mm. Have you thought about how one could possibly engage with popular mass culture productions mm. like these? Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a little bit about it in our little team um, in Canada um, and talked to some you know, actors and directors a little bit about it. It's, 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 um, it's interesting because I think there's been, the way Hollywood has tended to deal with climate change has been in the kind of cli-fi genre, right? Of just, yep. of just dystopian versions of the future um, that, you know, I, I have come to believe is part of the problem in that we've, we're, we're, we're telling variations on the same dystopic narrative again so many times that it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy like how many you know near future versions of of ourselves are we going to be presented with in which we all you know eat eat each other's kids and um you know have a tiny group of haves and hordes of locked out have-nots and you know that's the sort of basic plot you know backdrop of ecological disaster um of of pretty much every every depiction of the future. So what, one of the things that I've talked about with folks who have some, um, you know, power, narrative power in the, in the popular culture is like, is it possible to tell, to show us visions of the future that aren't terrible, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because maybe our biggest problem is we actually can't, we don't believe that there is a future in, in which we don't become this more extreme version of ourselves. This is why in No, It's Not Enough, I, I argue that Trump should be metabolized as dystopian art, right? Um, that he is a warning to, 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 to the world. Um, he is the, the logical conclusion of so many pre-existing trends, right? He is, the, he is our Frankenstein's monster, right? Stumbling around, you know, eating Big Macs and stuff. And, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, he is not other. He is us. Yeah. <laughs> as, as upsetting as that is to say in New York. Sorry, guys. But, but um, this is also... No, but, <laughs> no, but one thing I want to say a little bit about Trump, you know, since, since you, know, uh, it, it, you know, I was talking about denial and what what does climate change threaten, right? And so, I mean, so, you know, it threatens those profits, mm-hmm. it threatens an ideological infrastructure, but it threatens something else, which is deeper and older, which is the narrative of dominance over, over nature. And, you know, what Descartes, you know, Dick, Descartes, you know, we are the masters and possessors, p- possessors of nature, the narrative of the scientific revolution that all will be known um, and all and because all will be known, all will be controlled, right? And fossil fuels supercharged that idea of apartness from nature. We were able to have our little, you know, climate-controlled bubbles of apartness and we could sail ships, you know, without waiting for the wind to be in our favor. Um, and, you know, we could build factories with our portable coal instead of having to build them wherever there was rushing water and you could have a water wheel. So, you know, um, like this notional idea of apartness from nature became an actual lived reality or seemingly so um, for a couple hundred years of the industrial revolution. But then climate change comes along and says, uh-uh, we are in this together. Every action has a reaction. All that, 
all that coal you've been burning and oil and gas, yeah. um, it's been accumulating in the atmosphere, and you thought there wasn't a response, and you thought you were the boss of nature, but actually, um, you're now up against forces that are way more powerful than you, and anybody who's ever been in a hurricane knows what that feels like. Um, and so I think for a guy like Trump, whose brand is being the boss, who is this embodiment of like, I am absolute power, I bend the world to my will, right? Um, you know, I even control truth, right? You know, it's just, I'm just going to tell people that this tax cut helps the middle class. I'll say it as many times, as enough times, and they'll believe me because, you know, facts don't matter. What matters is what I say, and I'm just going to treat reality as if it's a reality television show, right? And so I think that for a guy like Trump and the, and the worldview that he represents, the fact that cl climate change is humbling, it puts us in our place, right? I think that's beautiful, like, you know, that, that clip from the film, like, you know, there's a beauty in, in respecting limits, in living within limits, in understanding that we are in a web of connection and that we are, no, we're not the boss, no, we are not a part, we're in a, we are in a, a network, a family of mm. living beings and living systems. I think there's beauty in that. I think there's um, incredible power and, and love in that. But I think if you've been telling yourself a story about how you are the boss <laughs> of everyone and everything, you're gonna be really, really, really threatened by that. And I think that that is part of why guys like Putin and Trump, you know, go so hard on the denial. That's fascinating. And, and I want to show you, Another little video um, that certainly does not uh, pay any homage or, or the least uh, humbleness uh, to what is happening. Um, this is a, a before Paris, the World Meteorological Organization produced for uh, our attention uh, a weather report for the North Pole 2050. Oof. So this is a weather report that sort of tells us what is going on uh, at the North Pole uh, in 2050. Video number four, please. Thank you, Alex. We do have some weather to tell you about across the Arctic Circle right now. There is a low pressure center that is centered right over northern Canada. And along with that, there will be some wind and increased wave action. There's a look at the satellite picture. You see that spin that is west of Baffin Bay there. And taking a look at the winds right now, they're fairly strong and driving out into the ocean north of Alaska. That's where wave heights are going to be two meters or greater. High pressure centered over the Barents Sea. As far as the shipping lanes are concerned, they are generally open. Notice that we might have some issues closer to the North Pole as the ice is beginning to expand there. And we'll take a look also at the forecast for next month. We do expect that central shipping lane right across the North Pole is largely going to be closed by that time as the ice expands, while the other ones will not. And here is the forecast for Nuke Greenland. Looking at the Norse Festival, should be a beautiful day. Lots of sunshine, 18 degrees. Winds out of the east-southeast at 15 to 20 kilometers per hour. Back to you. Right, there you go. So this is what it all looks like, and all it's about is getting there and tapping the new opportunities. Is there any way that you can see, um, let's <clears throat> say, another way of, is there anything that would stop this from happening or accelerating? Mm. Um, yeah, just thinking about that weather forecast, I mean, this past summer was 
the, the temperatures in the Arctic were not that different, right? We had wildfires in Siberia and Greenland, huge wildfires in sure, Greenland, yes. right? Um, which itself is, you know, creates this feedback loop, as you know, right? Because you have all of this soot created by the fires, and it, it lands on um, on the glaciers, and that. And when the glaciers are darker, when they're gray or black, they trap more heat and they melt faster, which is something that um, Jason Box, a wonderful glaciologist, um, has been studying, and other, others have as well. Um, but, um, so what was the question again? <laughs> well, let me show you one more picture, yeah, okay. and then I'll ask it again. Yeah. Um, number 13, please. Uh, this is a gas project up in Yamal, in the very northern part of Russia. Um, it's on land. Uh, this oh, I is, remember the question. This is natural gas, and have, let, let's have another picture just to show you the scale of things. Uh, we're very, very far uh, up into Siberia. Can I have picture number 14, please? Um, right, this is just to show you part of the, the, the building works that's going on there. And picture number 15, there's an interesting detail, because this, this is a Chinese vessel at the same site. Uh, this is the Chinese and the Russians are very closely working together to develop what is the largest industrial project in the Arctic at the moment. This is the Yamal Natural mm -hmm. uh, Gas Project. Yeah. So the thing really, let's take number 16 now we're at it. Uh, here is Alaska. This is uh, Xi Jinping, of course, the Chinese president uh, earlier this year visiting Alaska. This is Bill Walker, the governor. Uh, and they have now signed deals to the worth of 43 billion US dollars on a gas project. So industrial development okay. in the Arctic is yeah. hum humongously fast and large. So I think one thing we have going for us is that it is expensive, that oil and gas development in the, in the Arctic is expensive, and the price of solar is going down, right? So oil is getting more expensive because the easy, easier to access oil um, is depleting, and we have to go further and further you know, a, a field in order to, to, to get more oil, and that means more expensive. Right. And now, you know, we, we, the, the, the solar market has evolved um, to, to such a degree that it is on par with, with, with fossil fuels and, and, and dropping. But will all so the investment good. going on, is, is that not sort of going to, <clears throat> to bind the markets to consume whatever is being produced? Um, you know, how, however the, the energy is Sort being of, produced. yes. Yeah, I mean, because we don't only have a problem with how we're getting our energy. We also have a problem with just how much we consume and, and a disposable sort of way of life that's being exported to, to every corner of the globe. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately this is why, you know, I argue that this changes everything, that it is, you know, we, we are going to have to confront the growth imperative at the heart the heart of our economic system. We can't get away from that. We can't get away from these very difficult questions about how much is enough. Um, you know, is there, you know, can we live well, um, but less lavishly so that everybody on earth can have enough? Um, and I think it is possible, but it isn't possible within uh, an economic system that is built on speculative finance and endless consumption. Now, the reason why I'm not completely hopeless, and I realize I may be making you guys very, feel very hopeless, is that here's what I really like believe. If the only problem with this economic system we've been describing was that it is steadily heating our planet, 
and everything else about it was fine, I would say we are totally screwed because people are not going to change a system that is serving the majority of people well, except for the fact that it is slowly warming the planet. Then I would think really like pack it up, like mm. you know, don't have kids, it's not fair. Um, but here's the truth, <laughs> is that, that this economic system that is heating the planet and gradually making large parts of our planet uninhabitable is failing the vast majority of people on this planet on multiple levels with or without climate change. We are, it is producing absolutely untenable levels of inequality and hardship and warfare. And the desire for system change, for deeper change to the system is evident on many fronts with or without climate change. I think we saw it in this country during the election cycle with a candidate like Bernie Sanders um, able to get 13 million votes and take 22 states uh, in the primaries, which would have been unthinkable just a few years ago, but he was tapping into the fact, yay, like three Bernie Sanders supporters at the New York Public Library. Uh, that's okay, I got hissed the last time I was in New York. <laughs> Didn't Anthony was there. Um, <laughs> it's all right, it's a big Hillary city. Um, and, um, sorry guys. Um, no, but you know, I've been doing, doing um, some some. Uh, I've been doing some work with with friends who are who are um, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. I was at the at the Labor convention in in Brighton in October, which was the first convention after since the UK election in June, which was an incredible upset. Right, Theresa May calls this election because the polls are showing that Jeremy Corbyn is doing so badly that they're gonna be able to wipe out labor for a generation. It was a completely unnecessary election. They call the election and Corbyn comes out with a platform that is extremely ambitious, right? That is right. essentially, that, that is as close to a call for system change as you can imagine, that is taking on the logic of austerity that says we have a rigged economy that produces a gig economy instead of jobs, right? Um, he calls for nationalizing the rail system, the energy system, huge numbers of green jobs, a rapid transition to renewable energy, um, you know, fully funding the NHS, free college tuition. This was described by his critics as the world's longest suicide note because they were so sure um, that the public wasn't ready for this level of change, but they were wrong. And as people read the platform, his numbers started surging. He didn't win the election, but he denied the Tories their majority. And the polls right now show that if there was an election called in the UK, and there could very well be because the Tories are so mishandling Brexit, that Corbyn would be the next Prime Minister of Britain. So. That's just one example of the fact that there is a desire for deep change out there, not because of climate change. That's mm. one of many issues on which the system is failing. But, because but, of but, austerity, but, but, because of inequality, because of outrageous tax dodging, you know, revealed in documents like the Paradise Papers. But, but as you know better than most, this will <clears throat> not happen unless we bring on the Chinese, the Indians, um, and other great nations uh, outside, let's say, the Western Hemisphere, uh, and Russia. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and as, as these pictures perhaps showed a little, um, this is not really what the governments in Beijing and Moscow are looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we engage with the peoples of Russia and China? 
Have you any experience? I mean, you, you're, you're talking... Well, there has been a big shift in China. You know, it, just in the past decade, it's been, it's been enormous, right? Where, it, you know, it was sort of taken as, as a given that, yeah, China was going to open, you know, two new coal-fired power plants a week, you know, forever. And the, the, they're facing their own backlash, those leaders, because of absolutely untenable levels of air pollution. It's probably the most pressing political issue in China. And they're rolling out renewables faster than anybody, not yeah. because of the Paris Climate Accord, but because they're afraid of social unrest with, because of pollution levels. And the social unrest, do you believe the transformation that you see coming from grassroots movements of all sorts around the world, you, you've dealt with them uh, elaborately in your book, do you see that happening in countries like Russia and China? Well, like I said, um, I mean, there is a race against time about, I mean, th there are enormous downsides to, to our, the use of fossil fuels. And the downsides are growing the more we push into extreme energy, which carries on. You know, it's it's very dangerous to drill for oil there, right? We knew that know this when, with Shell's ill-fated exercises a couple of years ago, where you know, they smashed up their rig. There were high winds. Um, you know, there were court challenges that found that they had dramatically underplayed the the risks of a spill. It's basically impossible to clean up an oil yeah. spill, um, you know, in that kind of icy terrain. Um, so the risks are increasing, the costs are increasing, and the alternatives are increasing. So, you know, we don't, it, it simply isn't true that this is the only way that we can power our lives. And no. so I think, you know, your answer of like, okay, but what about, what about India, what about China, what about Russia? I think we are at a moment now where if a few, if a few significant countries do the transition as it really needs to be done, really get to 100% renewable yeah, energy, yeah, yeah, yeah. do it in a way that builds a fair economy, shows that you can solve multiple problems at once. And this is you know, a project that I've been involved in in Canada called The Leap, um, which grew, grows, grew out of this document that many thousands of Canadians signed that, that I, yeah. I was one of the drafters of. But you know, it's many It's in there. Many people who appeared at the New York Public Library were the, some of the original um, signers of the Leap Manifesto, yeah. uh, including lots of great authors like William Gibson. Um, but what it is is a plan for listening to what scientists are telling us about how quickly we need to get to 100% renewable well before mid-century, but doing it in a way where we simultaneously um, add uh, address the crisis of indigenous land rights in the country, the failure to respect indigenous land rights. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the document begins with the imperative to respect the original caretakers of the land, water, and air, and fully implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which says we can't do anything without free prior and informed consent of Indigenous people. Um, but then has a plan for, as we shift to renewable energy, why should we get it from a, a, just a few large players? I mean, you come from Denmark, where you, you know, I think 40% of your energy is coming from wind, but, you, but Denmark did it in a way, and I think it's been eroded uh, to, to a significant degree, but in the first stage of the wind revolution in Denmark, which was less about fossil fuels than, than not wanting to, to have nuclear power, there was an incredibly de decentralized model where farmers owned you know, the wind right. production and, and villages and towns and, and cities owned it so that 
the resources stayed in the communities, they could use it to pay for services. Germany has adopted this model more or less. It's also very contested. They created 400,000 good jobs. So when you have a few large economies that really do this right, um, and show we can create huge numbers of good jobs, they can be unionized jobs, that's important, because right now we're asking people to give up well-paying unionized jobs in the fossil fuel sector for jobs, you know, putting up wind turbines and solar panels that pay, you know, between $13 and $18 an hour, and, you know, this is not going to get the labor movement on side, so we have to really confront that. It's not just enough to talk about the numbers of green jobs, they have to be good jobs. Um, and, um, you know, what, one of the things we talk about in the Leap Manifesto is that, is that we need en not just energy democracy, i.e., you know, community-controlled renewable energy, but energy reparations. So the people whose land has been ravaged by fossil mm. fuel production or the people who've had the um, dirtiest industries in their backyards, which in this country overwhelmingly means communities of color and indigenous people, have to be first in line to own and control their own renewable energy projects. So you're fighting racism, inequality, you know, the legacy of colonialism, um, you know, building a fair economy, and you're getting off fossil fuels at the same time. And I think if we can come up with those multiple wins, yes, um, yes. Then, then people are going to see that and go, we want that. That's your utopia, as you say. We, we have to. We have to. I think port. we're, we're past but, utopia. But I'm not saying utopia that, uh, that to, ship to, sailed. to spite it, because <laughs> you, you say in here we do need to talk about utopias, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 there is this leap manifesto uh, in here in in full in in full, uh, and it's very rich uh, in considering indigenous peoples. Um, I want to show well, you. It was drafted with a lot of, um, with, a, with a, by like we had an original meeting of 60 movement leaders that included some of the most prominent indigenous elders exactly. in Canada. Exactly. So they wrote and I, it. And, and, I, and this is very prominent uh, in your books. Uh, let's have some of these indigenous peoples. There, there's picture number 24. Uh, as I said, there are four million people living in the Arctic. These are Nenet uh, children uh, of northern Russia. Uh, let's have some more. The, Picture number 25, um, some, some, some Ninet women in the north there, and, and 26. Uh, and then I want to quote Noam Chomsky, uh, who last year spoke to alternate um, uh, Alexander Rosenman. Noam Chomsky said, anyone who's not living under a rock knows that we're facing potential environmental catastrophe and not in the distant future. All over the world, it's the indigenous communities trying to hold us back. First Nations in Canada, indigenous people in Bolivia, aborigines in Australia, tribal people in India. It's phenomenal all over the world that those who we call primitive are trying to save those of us who we call enlightened from total disaster. And then, in, in uh, where is it, this one here, I found something that, that was closely related to that. You've already been there in what you've been telling us. Uh, I just want to quote something here. Many non, this is your book, of course. This changes everything, <laughs> if anybody was uh, not knowing that. Many non-native people are starting to realize that indigenous rights, if aggressively backed by court challenges, direct ac action and mass movements demanding that they be respected, may now represent the most powerful barriers protecting all, us, all of us from a future of climate chaos. The rights 
of indigenous peoples are the most powerful barriers protecting us from climate chaos. How can that be? Um, most powerful because, um, you know, in, in, in most countries, in indigenous land rights um, are recognized in some form or another, or there are treaties that have legal, uh, that are legally binding, or um, countries have ratified the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which says that, um, that, that development can't happen without free, prior, and informed consent. Now, um, in that book, you know, I tell a story about coming to um, New York with a couple of really important Indigenous leaders from Canada, one of them is the late Arthur Manuel, and another one is a man named Gujao, who is spokesperson for the Haida and Haida Gwaii. And they had a meeting at Standard & Poor's. They'd managed to get a meeting on Wall Street with Standard & Poor's with the guy whose job it was to issue Canada's credit rating. Okay? Um, and, and Canada has always had a AAA credit rating from Standard & Poor's, which is very valuable to signal to investors that this is a safe place to to sink your money. And Arthur had managed to get a meeting with this guy um, by amassing a whole bunch of, of, of court precedents that said that Canada was carrying this huge liability. I'm smiling at my friend Sherry Pasternak because she's doing all, like she should be up here saying this because this is, she's written a book about it. Um, but, um, but he was making the argument that, that uh, that we are actually not a good I I bet for investors because Canada owes huge amounts of money to indigenous people for land that has been stolen and, and that has been recognized by our Supreme Court to be legitimately indigenous land. And so we had all these writs and so on. And it was an incredible meeting to sit in on because the guy from Standard & Poor's knew all about the court precedents, had been uh -huh. following all of this very closely. Did they buy any of this? What he said was, yeah, he said, he said, we know this is true. Like, we know that the laws are in place. We know, we know, we know about those Supreme Court rulings. Um, and he, he said that we've determined that it's, he basically said we've determined it won't be enforced. And like what I, the section of the book that I, that, uh, that I where I relay that meeting is, uh -huh. is, is uh, it's just called You and What Army? Because that was, essentially what he was saying to Arthur and Gajau was, you do have these rights, I recognize these legal precedents, but, I, but you don't have the guns. That is literally what he was saying. He was like, the, the, the force of the state will come down and extinguish your rights, just like we saw at Standing Rock, right? With those tanks and water cannons and dogs, right? And so the real question, I think, for non-Indigenous people is like, are we gonna be the army? You know, well, like, are we going to say this is not just an indigenous issue? It is not just for you to say, well, hey, wait a minute, what about that treaty? Like, hey, what, wait a minute, like, what about these inherent rights? Yeah. Are we actually going to make this a broad-based human rights issue for everyone? Because if we do, those rights have way more muscle behind and, them. And I, and I know from reading your book that, that some of this has really made change in Canada. I mean, the, the, the insistence on indigenous rights have made great changes in, in, in Canada. But, but let me it's give It's our best hope of not getting any, like the pipelines that I listed. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, if they don't get built, it will be because of that. But then let, let me give you a little paradox then, if I may have picture number 27. Um, 
there's a wonderful picture from, from Greenland of a young woman there. Um, uh, and I think that one, and picture number 28, please, shows you very well uh, how the people of Greenland have taken very much control of their own country. They're, they're very autonomous. They have their own self-rule government. They rule basically uh, all internal affairs on their own. And the government of Greenland is bent on having oil drilled out of their oceans because they want to get rich so they can get independence from Denmark. But this is a question, right? I mean, this is why that quote that you, that you read earlier about, you know, what, what, why did I say that ultimately we're not going to fight climate change unless we're willing to talk about wealth redistribution and, right. and, re and the R word, which reparation, okay? Um, because Greenland is owed way more than just their independence, you know? Um, they, they're, they're owed, they're, they're, they are owed a debt for colonialism. They are, and, and if that debt goes unpaid, they will drill for oil as their only way for them to have income. And again and again, um, countries, new countries, older countries get put in this position. Another example of this is Ecuador, where Ecuador, under um, the government of Rafael Correa, adopted this plan that came from indigenous people in the Amazon, which was um, the, you know, the, the, one of the m most richly biodiverse parts of the world, the Yasuni um, National um, Wildlife, uh, sorry, the Yasuni National Park. Yes. It's an incredible place. Um, and it also, um, and you know, I think, I, I forget what, the, you know, there's more species per, you know, right. the size of the state yeah. in all of North America. A lot America. of them. So, yeah. Um, and um, it's also on top of a whole bunch of oil. And um, there's been a big fight about whether or not to dig up the oil under the Yasuni uh, National Park. And um, a, a group of indigenous people and ecologists with a group called Action Ecologica came up with this plan based on the concept of ecological debt that said, we, sh we, we want to leave this oil in the ground to protect this world heritage site that benefits all of humanity because it is sequestering all of this carbon and these trees, this is the lungs of the earth, and we all benefit from keeping this carbon in the ground and keeping these forests intact. But why should Ecuador, a very poor country that has been pillaged in the past, bear the entire financial burden for keeping that, that oil in exactly. the ground? We should help them keep it in the ground. So they came up with this plan and brought it to um, the, the UN, which would be that they would, they, that, that they would cover half of the money that they would lose, but they would ask the international community to cover the other half and commit to spending that money on investments in green energy, jobs, and healthcare, right? And it was crickets from the international community. And after a couple of years, Korea, who was never 100% behind the plan, said, screw it, we're digging up the oil with Chinese money, but, but, right? But, so whose fault is that? Like, but, is, but the UN helped them. There was money from Germany. So there was they, money from Germany. They, they, yeah, they were on yeah. the road. Well, uh, it was a wonderful model. It's a great model. Uh, unfortunately, but it's a model it that, ne that needs to be picked up 
by everybody, you know? And this is, you know, these are awkward questions in, in the environmental movement of, you know, what are the north-south economic transfers? What, right. you know, what do we owe each other if, this, if, if the whole burden of this transition isn't going to be offloaded onto but, the but, people? But, but I, I, again, I love the way that you are so constructive and reminding of, of <clears throat> those who actually find a way forward because they actually found a model that could have worked yeah. down yeah. there. And it, it could uh, still. Thank you for making us think and hopefully <laughs> act. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, that's the show. You can get Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything from one of our branches or your local library branch, and you can also read it on our Simply E app. As always, thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. 